Happy Family Day from the Fan Pregame. We're on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet 590, the Fan, for the next hour. Sharing it with our family here at Sportsnet. It's beautiful. And Justin's got his jersey on in the background. When did you play for that team, Brampton Battalion? I mean, I, it's not the battalion. I can't. Well, a can't version of it. There. Yeah, everyone wore. Everyone in Brampton played hockey for a while. Mm-hmm. Wore the battalion there it is. colors. Look Looks at that. Good the black jersey. You. The black jersey. When we went to black. It was uh, the dawn of a new sharp. era. It was pretty good. It was a good, pretty good jersey back then. I don't know if it's the sharpest jersey now. We're going to flip it over halfway, and we'll see Cuthbert on the background. It oh, is yeah. family day. Just time, as proof. Time to celebrate you. All right, so we're hot off a Leafs-Blues matinee day game. Bunch of games on the network right now, including Edmonton and Arizona, Ottawa and Tampa this evening. That's on Monday Night Hockey at 7 p.m. So we'll have Frank Saravelli joining us at 6 p.m. to whip around the NHL. See, uh, the stadium series that was last weekend was actually really great, and I'm not usually a fan, so we'll get into mm. that. Um, and what might be the most interesting Hart Trophy race we've had in years? We got a great guest at 6.30, Arjun Namala, Blue Jays' first round pick in 2023. There's an MLB commission doc, new doc, coming mm-hmm. out very soon called Indian Baseball Dreams uh, featuring Arjun Namala. It'll air on Sportsnet beginning February 26th. It's a four-part series. We'll ask him about you know, the pressures of, hey, you're the subject of a new documentary <laughs> from the Major League Baseball, but also, you know, he's... Uh, blazing a trail here. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's got to be some uh, pressure to that. Spring training, of course. And, uh, you know, what he likes about Toronto. So we'll get into that with Arjun Amala at 6.30. And keeping the baseball theme, Caleb Joseph will join us in half an hour, get us primed for spring training games, which begin Saturday on Sportset. (laughs) This week, we're going to have spring training. Uh, The start of a season, how that feels as a player, because we see everyone coming in in the best shape of their lives. Do they feel that way? And the Blue Jays pressure index this year as we start to shape what hopefully is a lengthy season for the Blue Jays. And we got a weekend recap smorgasbord. Lots to dig into from a busy weekend, including mm-hmm. a pretty dreadful NBA All-Star game. Two <laughs> rousing nights at Scotiabank Arena. Stadium Series, as you mentioned. Uh, UFC 298 over the weekend. And mm-hmm. Sabrina versus Steph. Lots to get into. Okay, so let's start with... The Maple Leafs weekend, they just finished the game here against the Blues, a 4-2 win. They are 8-2-0 in their last 10 games. They're on a 103-point pace. They crushed the Ducks. We are there, Scotiabank Arena, Saturday night. 9-2 win. Matthews, another hat trick. Things have really changed. Do we owe it to Ridley Gregg for inspiring this team? I don't know. It's like a whole new Maple Leafs team has emerged. Yeah, it's almost like this team... I mean, we've been talking a lot about the idea of them being too comfortable or whatever you want to call it. But when a little adversity comes their way, it's, and again, adversity comes in the form of Stanley Cup playoff games. I get that. (laughs) But like when things are not ideal, and they're not ideal playing without Morgan Riley and losing John Tavares, Mitch Marner for uh, for, uh, at points here over the last couple games, it's like they get the most out of each Mm -hmm. other. And four wins to start. Uh, the stretch without Morgan Riley means they've got at least eight of the 10 points available during his absence, which means they not only successfully survived and didn't have their season ruined by Morgan Riley's absence, but they actually thrived and flourished in his absence, which is something that they do when Matthews is out. Good record. When Riley's out, good record. When they're missing stars, they have a pretty good record. And it just seems like this is another uh, point in time where a little curveball throws is thrown their way and they manage to step up to the plate. I will say, though, despite Austin Matthews' goal scoring being, like, the main driver of all this, Ilya Samsonov is just, mm-hmm. like, a, a, not even a different guy. Like, more than just a return to what he was. Like, he's been absolutely awesome since he came back 
after we were wondering if he'd ever come back. Now it seems like this ship has completely steadied, steadied, or steadied excuse me, from a goaltending perspective, and they have someone to rely on back there. And that, even more than goal scoring from the best goal scorer on the planet, is of utmost importance. You can't win games without it, and they have it in Samsonov right now. Yeah, weathering the storm was going to be, I guess, the the phrase of January and February with Samsonov being up and down, Martin Jones being, I guess, as good as you could have ever hoped for, Joseph Wall on the uh, on the injury list. It was weather the storm, see if Samsonov can find his form, and, and he has certainly at least leveled out at this point um, to a point where you are comfortable putting him in a majority of these games coming up, and they've, they've got four this week. Uh, today, they've got a back-to-back, and then they have a big one against the um, the av- Avalanche on Saturday. So you're going to need more, and you're going to need consistency from Ilya Samsonov. It seems that we've found this. On Austin Matthews, though, it is what we're seeing is almost unbelievable, right? 76-ish goal pace, depends if you're an optimist or you want to uh, go down a point. Uh, but 76 is <laughs> unbelievable. I did notice today he's got 80 written on his glove. Really? What do you think that I means? I didn't see that. Is it, I'm not getting 76, I'm getting 80. It, that might be. I mean, it's an interesting point. He's always got something. He had, him and uh, Mitch Marner had little happy faces at one point, and Mitch Marner spoke to the media and said, I put it on there so I remember to love the game of hockey. I think he started that when Babcock was his coach. Nonetheless, they've always got something on their wrist, and mm-hmm. number 80 on your palm. I don't know what it's for, but it's an interesting uh, thought. 80 is a little bit more interesting to me than, than the happy face, although <laughs> maybe a reminder to just enjoy right. what you're doing will help uh, Mitch Marner. But that's an interesting one. I, I, I'm not going to – I mean, <laughs> this has evolved quickly from like, oh, 65 to 70 to 75. And if he's put 80 out there in the world, like who am I to say it's all about that manifesting. it's not going to happen? But you kind of teed it up a little bit. Like if if we're talking 70 goals for Austin Matthews, mm-hmm. if we're talking 75, 80 would be next level. But the way this Hart Trophy race is shaping up to me is fascinating. Because can you deny a guy who scores 70 goals? Connor McDavid all of a sudden is on pace for 100 assists, let alone 100 points. 100 assists in a season for Austin Matthews, is the, or for Connor McDavid right now, is the pace he's on. The favorite is neither of those guys. Mm-hmm. It's Nathan McKinnon. You also have Nikita Kucherov, who's leading the league in scoring at this moment. I mean, we're talking about four of the faces of the game, some of the best talents we've seen in our lifetimes, and they might be having, at the same time, simultaneously... Their greatest seasons. Maybe you can't say that about Connor McDavid. Maybe in the end you can. But these guys are all in this race right now where it seems like they're going to either get the best out of each other or set some sort of impossible uh, setup for voters to sift through and decipher from and try to actually choose who's the MVP of this like, league. What's more valuable, year. being Connor McDavid, who brings his team from the depths of the NHL rankings mm-hmm. into a playoff push? Is it Austin Matthews that might score 75 goals, let's just say, but maybe the Leafs don't even win the Atlantic, which they probably won't at this point, but they get themselves into a playoff position. Is it Nikita Kucherov, who's just like lights out, whatever, scores goals and doesn't like, he doesn't even care, right? He's just quiet about it. Or Nathan McKinnon, who's been a force, who's got a point in every single home game this year. Like, it is so hard to value those things. It is the most valuable player, but is it the most valuable player in the league, to their team, to their circumstance, to their own history as a player like 
it might not be Connor McDavid's best season, but is it his most valuable season? It's so, I'm glad we don't have to vote on this. And it, it Frank not, will give us good perspective. Yeah, it may not be his best, and yet he might have more points than everyone else right. by the end. And is that enough <laughs> to just get you the Hart Trophy? Or is 70 goals mm-hmm. an automatic trigger? You win the Hart Trophy? Or is it Nathan McKinnon, who I thought like was maybe taking a step back? Multi-point efforts in his no, last he, three games. No like, steps back. These guys are not taking steps back. They're all pushing each other, at least it seems, even if they're not really thinking about it. But if Austin Matthews has 80 written in his glove, I think he's thinking about scoring goals I hope so. almost exclusively. I hope somebody asked point. him about that 80, but I just saw a photo of it um, after the game here. I don't know if we've had our guy Luke Fox on the case. If not, we'll get him on it because that's something. It's something. Um, he does have an opportunity to score his 50th on Wednesday night against the Arizona Coyotes. I mean, Arizona kid, 50 goals. It feels like a lock. I hate using that word, but... I mean, if he doesn't do it, then it would be it would be weird. Him not scoring in a game is actually the odds are are, are against him when you look at the books. If you want to bet on um, Austin Matthews' goal, actually for him to not score is plus mm-hmm. money. So it's pretty crazy. And, and that would be in his fifty fourth game. We're mm-hmm. talking fifty goals, maybe in fifty four games. He's forty nine and fifty three right now. I mean, that is it's it's ludicrous. Yeah. It's it's ridiculous stuff. And even if seventy isn't an automatic trigger for a Hart Trophy, and you do the 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 work in your head where it's, okay, who is actually most valuable? Like, mm-hmm. who is most valuable to their team? You kind of laid it out. They're not going to win the Atlantic Division, likely, because Florida and Boston are so strong. But where would they be without the 70 goals? Not in the playoffs. That could be in the cards. For, exactly. Like, it, this is truly lifting your team from something that might be pretty ugly, mm-hmm. honestly, without it, to, you know, a, a pretty comfortable position, at least it seems, if he can score 70, I think we're kind of assuming, extrapolating uh, into a good spot, but they're not out of the woods, even despite this ridiculous goal-scoring streak and stretch and season for Austin Matthews. In terms of value, I don't know if anyone can really compare to Matthews right yeah. now. We're going to talk more about this with Frank Cervelli, as we said, at 6 o'clock, uh, president of HockeyCon at dailyfaceoff.com. But we got to see two back-to-back rockin' nights at Scotiabank Arena. It started for me on Friday night with the PWHL. It was honestly one of the most incredible sporting experiences that I've ever been to. 19,285 loud, rowdy, hungry, passionate fans, not even just women's hockey fans, fans in general at Scotiabank Arena, obviously setting an all-time women's hockey record, not just you know college, professional, like all across women's hockey. And they've just continued to prove that the product is worth investing in, worth um, attending, worth talking about, worth putting on TV, Worth bringing your kids out to. It was so, so awesome to see. Unfortunately, my Montreal girls couldn't put the puck in the net. We had the Laura Stacy fan club signs there, but they had a good time. Even when I talked to the players afterwards, we stuck around to just see them. Like, they came out of the locker room, like, wide-eyed. Just, like, that was honestly unbelievable. And they've played at the Olympics. They've won gold medals. Some of them won gold medals in Canada, mm. or Team Canada. And speaking to them afterwards, it was just something it was a different feeling. It was, it was encompassing all this hard work that they've put into building this league, having that one big night at Scotiabank, and it's just a regular game. It wasn't, you know, some special rivalry night. It was a regular season game at Scotiabank Arena, and they picked a night where there's a lot of stars in town, and they sold out instantly, right? They sold out season tickets instantly. You can't get a ticket to go to a game. And I don't know where the argument, like, there's no more argument about, well, I don't know about viewership. Oh, it's not as good. They just keep proving it all wrong and proving that this is something really special that we're seeing. So 
Huge shout out to the PWHL, to the players, the fans, people that came to watch. It was unbelievable. And uh, I certainly was happy that I ripped out here on Friday night. There you go. Got on that TTC. Did and you got miss down anything of I missed half the first period, really? unfortunately, because Ooh. you know what happened? I got to Bluer and Young Station and the train was coming. It said three minutes and the train that came was out of service. So then I had to wait another five minutes, and I was like, that's that's a whole shift. That's two shifts. Like, I'm just sitting there watching the trains come by. But nonetheless, I got there, and it was awesome. So I think the biggest success for the PWHL so far uh, is with the players, what you said, mm-hmm. coming out wide-eyed and, like, and I, and I think I'm kind of speaking for you, but I, I think the experience in women's hockey for those who played professionally before this would have been of routine disappointment, mm-hmm. where, like, the infrastructure continues to let you down. The the people in charge and that, that's not like direct shots yeah, at anyone no, no, but like the way everything was orchestrated the the support it was always a bit of a letdown right it never it never was able to prop it up in a way that it had to be or any sport needs some propping up in terms of you know the organization around it because without it you don't really have anything so previously everything around the game let it down now i think everything around the game is surprising uh, in, in a good way, mm-hmm. like the flip side of disappointment. Like it is completely turned around where it is more than they probably expected and anticipated uh, this season, right? Like they, there were big hopes, obviously, and the investors were great and, and the buy-in was great and it felt like it was coming together. But I would imagine that each player in the PWHL right now is surprised even incrementally mm. by what's been, what's happened this season. So to go from, something that was disappointing all the time over and over and over again to surprise for the better. It, it, that's the story of the PWHL season for me. And uh, so Saturday, so Friday night was Montreal and Toronto. The Montreal played yesterday as well. And they had another sellout over 10,000 people just at a, a regular arena. It's not the Bell Center. It was just the, one of their arenas. The Laval's, right? Yeah, uh, no, this one was uh, Bell Place. So a, a different one. They have okay. two. Um, but 10,000 plus on a sat- Sunday to go watch a women's hockey game was unheard of. That would have had to be a special event. Not even like that never happened. And that's just a regular Sunday, regular season game for Montreal. So actually going to Montreal this weekend to watch the girls play uh, on Saturday. Go. Yeah, Montreal and Ottawa. And that's going to be like you're almost anticipating another sellout every single game. It's going to be one of those loud, crazy, rabid fan bases. That's why I wanted to go see. Obviously, my friends play for that team, but just experience the different fan bases and see how excited they are for hockey. So I'll go uh, on Saturday and I'll give you all my input and my takes on Toronto fan base versus Montreal because I go to the Mattamy games and I get to go to one in Montreal. They got two arenas. I think this one, uh, this is a different one from last week. They were in Bell Place. This one's oh, the auditorium. A little bit different, but they get two barns. Quickly on that, on the topic of rinks, mm-hmm. um, selling out Scotiabank Arena, what is the long-term implication for the PWHL, given that you have proof of concept there, mm. you sold out uh, a, a PWHL game, 19,000 yeah. plus. What does that mean for the future, I guess, in terms of PWHL Toronto mm-hmm. and where they're going to play hockey? Well, there's no doubt this Madame Athletic Center is a beautiful rink. I played in it for a couple of years. It's... Number retired in the rafters. <laughs> it's not retired in the rafters yet, <laughs> but it's a great location. Aesthetically, the, the TV product is amazing, but it's way too small. Like it is, it's holds about 2,600 for a, a hockey game. Scotiabank's 19,000. You, you got to meet in the middle there. I do not think that the PWHL Toronto team would be able to sell out Scotiabank Arena every single night if they had a 23 home game season, 
but which I don't think they have to though. And they don't. And they don't. They don't have but to. But just because it's uh, there's there are sellouts and their records doesn't mean that like okay, fifteen thousand on a Wednesday like night, it's not a disappointment. And, and I think that's just important to state because people are all like, well, you know, if it's not nineteen thousand, is it a diminished experience? No. I think a good example is the PWHL Minnesota team plays out of the Excel Energy Center, and that is where the Wild play. So let's take a look at their entire season this inaugural year. Are they are they 50%, 60%? Where's their selling rate? That's a pretty good example. That's the state of hockey. They're hungry for hockey in Minnesota. Like most of those girls on the Minnesota team are Americans. They're either from Minnesota or the nearby area. So they have a really important fan base there. I think that's a good reference point for Toronto. Uh, I don't think Scotiabank for a full season is next year. I think you could work your way into it. Maybe it's Coca-Cola Coliseum. Maybe it's a maybe it's a split. You play three games at Scotiabank. You just got to get more people. Or you people. do like Sundays at Scotiabank Arena, something I, like that, where it's more, sure. where you can have teams, full out teams mm-hmm. coming out, and more families. Because yeah. again, Scotiabank Arena is sort of for a certain clientele already. Like mm. the people who go to Leaf games are mm-hmm. maybe, you know, on Bay Street already mm-hmm. and they just walk down the street and go to the game. It, it, there are families there, obviously, every single night, but it's not like full-out teams are able right. to go. And that's kind of what the PWHL, not is leaning on, but a lot of, I'm sure you saw mm-hmm. a bunch whole, of... Whole hockey teams, Whole hockey sure. teams yeah. that are going there. That's a tough ask on a Wednesday night. So maybe that would work on Sundays routinely. Yeah, I think there's a there's a perfect step up Somewhere in the city, I don't know how it works financially. I don't know how it works with having no one that owns your team yet either, right? Like the Leafs do not own the PWHL Toronto. If point. they did, maybe they could work something out. Uh, but it's just awesome that we're even talking about that uh, a month and a half into the season. So PWHL did an amazing job. Kudos to everybody. Friday night, unbelievable experience. Um, do you want to talk more stadium series? Yeah, it wasn't the biggest hockey crowd, though, over the weekend because we saw that there at was MetLife, more. right? MetLife ha- hosted back-to-back days. Well, let me just preface this with saying I have over the last couple of years felt like we have way too many outdoor day- games. I love a, a really big heritage classic, winter classic, whatever it is. If it's all of the marketing into one big game, if it's New Year's Day, if it's Christmas Eve, like something that is all eyes on this product, usually in a really cool place or there's an in- importance between these two teams playing. But I felt over the last couple of years, there's been way too many games that you can't even keep track of. Is this a stadium? Is this a, uh, what is this one for? Mm-hmm. And this stadium series actually surprised me. And I think it's because, A, there was 80,000 people at the back-to-back days. They had a really cool vibe around the teams that participated meant something. It wasn't just two random teams. They had great performances. Most of the teams came in in attire that was fun, <laughs> except for one. Yep, 75% um, of them. But I think it was, it it just... It almost re-sparked, okay, that's what an outdoor game should feel like. And I didn't have that take before the stadium series. I would say I'm itching myself closer to liking them again. Yeah, uh, I, I'm kind of in the same spot as you. I think the stadium series ones leave something to be desired because you've already gone through the more important one, mm-hmm. whether it's Heritage Classic, Winter Classic. It's already, you know, it's played after. But I think they caught something here in terms of, okay, it's four teams from the Metropolitan Division, from mm-hmm. the same surrounding area, where you could just go and enjoy hockey for the majority of a, of a weekend. And those fan bases, like, hate each other. Yeah. It's so awesome. There's, so there's, like, already some passion. Everybody can go. It's mm-hmm. not like you're flying out. It, it's just, it felt like that is something that really, really worked because it was localized, and you can include four local teams in that localization. I think that worked uh, really, really well. The game uh, especially uh, the New York mm-hmm. game, the Rangers win was awesome. So that helps when you get a really, really good game. And the jerseys were great, I thought, mm-hmm. too. But I think one of one thing I would love to see the NHL do is have a firm 80-game schedule 
with two flex games. Mm. And something, I think this is another example of what could work, where you have those four teams play a little tournament. So you have two games that are already locked into the schedule. You're part of the all game. over the in-season tournament with the But it doesn't even NBA. have to be anything. It, know, but you could play three games, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you play two games, sorry, each one. And then the winners play each other in a third game. Like what would you do the All-Star? And you'd be able to sell out one more time. Mm-hmm. Exactly like the All-Star. More concessions, more interest and intrigue and actual like uh, stakes on the line for these games. You get a third, You get a second outdoor game to play in. If you win mm. and it counts against like the rival rescheduling or the flex okay. scheduling you could have in the NHL. I could buy and I it. I feel like you could find different reasons to have these flex games that actually mean something. Mm-hmm. There could be a few duds like San Jose and Chicago, probably meeting sometime in March if you're doing a flex schedule. But guess what? You earn high mm-hmm. profile flex games by how good you are as a team. And I think the Heritage Winter Classic teams could play yeah. in a matchup. If you wanted to flex that, you could tap into rivalries that are heating up like the fact that the Oilers and Maple Leafs don't play each other enough, you could just flex awesome. a McDavid versus Matthews on ESPN and Sportsnet, and it could be a big thing. Mm-hmm. I, I just feel like a rivalry week or something like that, and you could tap into the stadium series and actually bring a little bit more out of it. So I, I thought it was a really big success. It was mm-hmm. great. The uh, jerseys, the games, the fans, everything about it was actually a good thing. But again, it meant more to the localized area. And if you can expand that localized area, which they did with this one, I, I think it works better. But the fact that it kind of filtered into our consciousness this this year, yeah. I, I think it means like, hey, something worked and they should continue to tap into it. They did announce an, oh, uh, a new chapter in the legendary Ohio State-Michigan college football rivalry, rivalry will be what they're calling the um, Ohio Stadium Stadium Series in 2025, which would be Red Wings and Blue Jackets. Mm-hmm. College football in the States, as somebody that went to this school in the States, is unbelievable. It is, it's another world. And if you can find a way to use that mentality of teams or cities or uh, areas that hate each other, you're thinking ahead. But I don't know. It'll be proven there to There is see. nothing right now to the Red Wings, Blue Jackets. There rivalry, isn't. Though. Like you might have to get them in literal Michigan Wolverine I, and Ohio State Buckeyes. But I, I think that that's what you might have. There, there's going to be some sort of way to tie these schools into this. Mm-hmm. You're picking this for a reason. I'm not the creative director of the, the NHL, but it's a great start. I don't know what it's going to, it's next year, so we'll see what they do for it. But they're really trying to it's have, idea. they're having a, a different idea. And there's some uh, University of Michigan alumni on Detroit, which is great. Um, obviously that one make, makes a lot of sense. Uh, but the Blue Jackets one, let's try to find a way in there. And they're not a very good hockey team right now, so that's also tough. But if you said like Leafs, Habs, Rogers Center outdoor game, tell me that wouldn't be unbelievable. Or even put it in Quebec City somewhere. Like, that's a really cool, maybe because Toronto would be nice if they played in one. They played in, what, the Centennial Classic that one time? Mm-hmm. But find something they different. They played in Stadium Series since. Oh, they did? Yeah. Which one was that? Washington Air Force. See, do I, didn't resonate. Anyway, I, we're, we're on their way back, maybe. Uh, we'll talk to Frank about that in about half an hour. Um, Want to take a quick break, and we'll talk to Caleb Joseph on the other side. Sure. Yeah. We got lots to go through. We still didn't get into the NBA All-Star Weekend, which honestly... It's maybe for the better. It's maybe for the better. It was really a dud compared to what we had, which was an awesome NHL All-Star Weekend where they tried new things. They were innovative. They had a new skills competition that actually elevated the players' intensity. There was a million dollars on the line. Even the All-Star Game meant something more to the players this year. The polar opposite with the NBA 
Nobody wanted to be there, or or they did, and they didn't want to try. They didn't really care. Like, it was hard to watch that they had Sabrina and Steph, which was the highlight of the entire weekend. And that probably underscores the fact, uh, and I guess, well, we got a minute or so here, mm-hmm. uh, underscores the fact that, yeah, uh, if you innovate and if you try something different, it, it could be the actual thing that works the most. Yep. And, and I, we were at the game on Saturday. We were at Scotiabank Arena for Leafs and Ducks, so I missed uh, most of Sabrina and Steph. We caught mm-hmm. the highlights. Clearly, that was the thing that resonated the most. It did spark the most controversy and topic. Uh, mm. I, I think that's for good and bad reasons. But clearly there's something there. Caitlin Clark leaves college at the end of this year. I mean, obviously there's something they can tap into there, and I think they will. But the rest, I don't know. I don't know how to save the NBA All-Star game. I don't know how to save the dunk contest. They're going to need more than just innovation, I think, to to shore those two things up. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, All-Star games are tricky. And this is another example over the weekend of why, and probably, as you mentioned, a good example of why the NHL you know, pull a couple strings mm-hmm. and improve their product. I feel like it's it's safe to say that the Sabrina Steph thing almost saved NBA All-Star Weekend from being a complete and utter disappointment. That was the most most watched, most cared about, most interacted part of the entire weekend. And you have a, a WNBA and an NBA player going head-to-head. And although there was some interesting dialogue about her ha- should have shot here, shouldn't have shot here, doesn't matter, she didn't beat him, whatever, we can get into that another time. Having them use that moment was really, really important for the NBA because everything else was a disappointment. So good thinking about being innovative and have a woman and a man go into competition head-to-head. The NHL's used the, the women uh, with the three-on-three all-star showcase as a, as a point of pride. Like, I think that you can incorporate both leagues into something special. But the rest of that weekend was a hard watch. I did not see much positive commentary on online. That's not really the feeling you want, you know, thinking about what's next for your league. Even Adam Silver, when he was handing out the award, was kind of like... That was wild. He's like, congrats on scoring 200 points. Like, he he looked pissed. Like, Like I'm I'm not sure what he was expecting, though. That's the problem. It's like, nobody's expecting... Like, did he have a conversation with them all and be like, hey... Like, I need something better from you. Or, like, like they, do they disobey him in some way? But it looked like no. he, like, the way he handed out that trophy was, uh, like, semi-disgust. Yeah. And I don't blame him. It was a tough watch. Um, okay, we'll get into a bunch more, uh, including UFC 298 and 300 being announced. We watched 298 on the weekend. 300 got our headline fight. Maybe not as exciting as we thought, but nonetheless, it's around the corner. And uh, Caleb Joseph will join us on the other side of the break. We'll get into spring training. Blue Jays begin that on Sportsnet on Saturday already. And Arjun Amala will join us at 6.30. The first round pick in the, for the Blue Jays in the 2023 MLB draft. A really great series. Going to be aired on Sportsnet. Uh, MLB commission doc. Indian baseball dreams. We have lots to go through with him. And then Frank Saravelli will be sandwiched in the middle of some baseball talk. All that to come on the fan pregame. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back on the fan pregame Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet 590. The fan for the next hour and a half. It's family day. Let's bring in one of our very own, Caleb Joseph, Caleb, happy start to spring training just around the corner, and thanks for joining us today. 
Yeah, you got it. Exciting times. <laughs> is it super exciting? Because I wonder for like a player, like, <laughs> were you coming in? I know everyone's in the best shape of their lives and they're excited to show off the and new fits. if they're fits not, and, watch out. Yeah, because everybody on Twitter will make a comment out of it. But, like, is this an exciting, like, back to school type feeling for, for everyone hitting uh, Dunedin and beyond? Yeah, it's exciting because it's the one time throughout a 200-plus day season that you feel 100%. Mm. And then as soon as the first day of spring training is over, you're already (laughs) starting to feel aches and pains. So getting there, seeing the guys, seeing the boys, um, getting excited about the possibilities of a new season is always uh, refreshing and exciting. And you get down there, and I was a gear guy, so of course the first part of spring training is so cool because you get the new cleats and the new batting gloves and check out your new – blades of choice mm-hmm. so it's a it's a great time for for players how does that work there's no christmas tree set up i imagine but <laughs> you just have like uh, you know boxes and boxes at your stall yeah. ready to go and oh, that, i mean yeah that's uh, for any athlete that's got to be the absolute best thing <laughs> yep no doubt and especially when you sign kind of an endorsement deal with the company and uh, you just you show up and it's literally christmas the only thing that's different is it's not really wrapped they just have your name on them and you just start tearing them open and uh <laughs> It's a lot of fun. It's it's a really cool day, and then you have to wear them, and then you realize, wow, I haven't worn cleats in uh, almost four <laughs> months, and my feet are killing me. So it's a, it's a unique time. Yeah, I was going to say, how long uh, can a catcher feel good for? You mm-hmm. mentioned one day, but, like, is it different for catchers and everybody else? Like, can Vladdy feel good a little bit longer than Caleb Joseph? A hundred percent. Catching in the big leagues or just in, in a major league spring training environment, is the absolute worst because there's like 50 something pitchers and all those pitchers are constantly throwing. They're on rotations. They're throwing, I think every two or three days. And then your starters are throwing um, a little less regularly, but all those pitches have to be caught by somebody and guess who does it. So the catchers never get a day off where a pitcher will throw a side session might have two days off and then he'll, uh, he'll throw another one. The catchers just keep going. So the minute you put the gear on, spring training is the absolute worst as a catcher. And if you get out of spring training healthy as a catcher, that's the biggest plus and the biggest positive and takeaway you can get from spring training. You're getting beat up right away. Balls are spiked, hitting dirt. You're already getting bone bruises. Yeah, it's a tough life. And uh, woe is me to all those catchers, right? <laughs> oh, it's such a tough job. But it does. It is. It is uh, the tools of ignorance are real and getting through spring training is, is the most important thing. So some cons there, but you did outline some pros, a lot of new gear uh, at the stall when you arrive. But I wonder what it's like seeing new versions of old pitchers or pitchers that you've caught before. Sure. Like, is there, it, it can, can it look completely different? And I might be talking a little bit about Alec Manoa, but not really, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, just anyone that you're, you know, you're expecting something from. You say Kikuchi a year ago would have been maybe a little bit different than what the catchers were accustomed to. But is there sometimes drastic change where it's like, hey, that's not where I was expecting the ball. That's not how I was about to, expecting the flight to be. Uh, what's it like catching new versions of old pitchers? Yeah, there, there's two types. There's guys that have kind of totally reinvented themselves that they come in with two or three new pitches, a new arm angle, a new flight to the ball like you just alluded to. Those are incredibly fun. You feel like you have new toys to play with, Um, especially with the technology the way it is. It's so good that guys can really get on these uh, track mans and rapsodos and and what have you and really start to perfect certain shapes. So it's one thing 10 years ago for guys to come in and say, I got a nice curve ball and they flip one up to you and you're going, man, that's one of the worst pitches I've ever seen. Guys know now when they come into spring training, 
if it's meeting a certain metric requirement, it's going to play. And that's, you know, they don't really have to use the eye test as much anymore. If they know they're getting X amount of spin and X amount of break on a certain pitch, it's going to play. And so I imagine when you see those guys, it is super awesome and unique. And then there's those veteran guys that come in, like I would say a Kevin Gosman, that he's going to be fastball split. We all know that. But he might tinker around a little two-seamer in spring training. He might try a circle change, even flip a, the occasional slider, maybe even work a little 12-6 breaking ball. And those guys are literally just kind of tinkering around, messing around. They'll talk about it in the interviews, and then you'll see it about – 2% of the time during the season. So you have these kind of new age guys that are coming in, totally reinventing themselves. Then you have the guy that says, like a Chris Bassett, yeah, I'm working on a, a backdoor front hip screwball that dry row. And you're like, okay, yeah, oh, sweet. And they never throw it. So uh, there's two different types. Uh, I guess we will stick with the pitching because, I mean, honestly, throughout the Blue Jays season, except for Alec Manoa, it was the most consistent, inspiring part of the Toronto Blue Jays. Alec Manoa back in there as of the other uh, other day, got a chance to hear from him. He looks great. Of course, everybody looks great, uh, but he looks like he put a little bit extra hard work into this offseason in terms of his physical and mental approach to the game. We'll start with Alec Manoa. Like, what are you anticipating? What are you hoping to see early on? With Alec Mendoa, uh, John Schneider did say he's going to be competing for a roster spot, hopefully putting him in that fifth starter spot. There are some other backup options. It seems like the Blue Jays put a little bit of a cushion there, but what do you anticipate mm-hmm. from Alec Mendoa early on here? Well, the first signs, like you said, are incredibly encouraging, and that's his physical shape and the way that he comes in. He looks like a different guy, and he's got a little bit of hair under the ball cap, <laughs> and he's looks he just looks toned up, and he looks like he's ready to go. And there are times when you go through your career where you uh, you kind of take the 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 gas off the the off the accelerator a little bit, and it's not that you're not trying any harder, but like you kind of feel like okay. I've kind of established myself in the big leagues. I've kind of got it figured out. And then the game hits you back and it's all about how you respond. And so the first step is amazing. The fact that he looks like he's gotten himself in the best shape of his life. Yep. There we go. Can't go an entire interview <laughs> without saying it, but you know, you just expect a lot of the intangibles to show up as well. For me, the intangible is just confidence. And man, I can tell you this because I was not a very good major leaguer. When, when you lose confidence, it's an incredibly tough place to play the big leagues is a very tough place to play when you have no confidence and so he knows he's in great shape he's going to come in incredibly confident and i had a manager one time say you know when it, when you're talking about competition good healthy competition always allows the cream to rise to the top and we've seen what alec Manoa is capable of and knowing that he's battling for that fifth spot and knowing that he's not a dead lock to make the team I think you're going to see a version of Manoa that rivals some of his best years in the big leagues. And I think he's going to really bring it. And the first uh, steps are already checked off. Now it's about continuing to gain confidence. The ball comes out how he wants. I'm sure he's in, you know, his arm is in just as shape as his, his mentality is. And I wouldn't be surprised if he took a massive leap forward and uh, really helped out the Jays this year. So through Manoa, there's one pathway to improving the team, clearly. Uh, at, at some point while Manoa was pitching, uh, you were kind of, uh, you weren't set up for success. We'll just put it lightly, uh, to win that ball game. So that's every fifth day. That's 20% of the games that you were kind of working at a bit of a disadvantage, at least through the front half of the season. Uh, but it seems like mm-hmm. the Blue Jays have to make up a little bit more than just that. Uh, and looking and reflecting on the offseason, Caleb, 
you think they did enough to compete with the likes of the Texas Rangers, Baltimore Orioles, New York Yankees now? Like, was there enough in terms of additions for you for the Blue Jays this offseason? Yeah, great question. And I think that's going to be the question going into the very last day of, of the season <laughs> is, is it enough? And it just comes down to how much uh, the, the base and how much as a Blue Jays fan you truly believe in the core that Ross Atkins is talking about. And I believe that there's another monster season in Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s pocket. I feel like Bo Bichette has a level he can get to. Even the contributions of Biggio towards the end of last year, if they can kind of start to get that on a super regular basis. You talk about Kirk having a little bit of a down year. If if everybody brings their A game and brings their best, do they have enough with the additions of a Justin Turner re-signing Kiermaier? It is possible. I absolutely think it's possible. I would love to see another addition to that lineup, but if you're looking at everybody's best season one through nine and they bring it, would it stack up? Yeah, I think so. And then when you look on the flip side, can you prevent runs at the pace you need? Is it there? Yes. It's one of those scenarios where I think everything has to go right if you're going to rinse and repeat on what was a pretty disappointing season last year for the offense. I do think they've made some internal changes to allow some of these guys to be more consistent and get more out of what they're bringing, but it's to be determined. So they're going to have to have everybody firing on all cylinders for pretty much 162 for it, for it to all go right for me. So Ross said it, internal improvement is something they're going to be leaning on, and you kind of laid it out there, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. There's a lot of runway there. If we're building a podium, though, in terms of who has to – improve what from within or what pieces have to provide more in order for this team to hit its performance ceiling. I think Vlad and Manoa are one, two who'd be number three for you. For me, it's George Springer. And I I'm, I'm a little bit on a different boat here. Uh, I, I know everyone expects Vlad to be the 21 Vlad. And I, I want him to be that Vlad. And I think he can be that Vlad, but honestly, if everyone else around him does their job, it gets to their peak potential. I think you see a better version of Vlad. I mean, the Yankees haven't won a World Series with Aaron Judge by himself. I mean, it takes more. Look at Mike Trout. He's never won a World Series. It takes more than just putting the entire offense on one guy's shoulder. Does he have to be better? Absolutely. Can he? Absolutely. But I need more from George Springer. This is a $160 million player. I've got to have him in the 850 OPS. It's whatever it takes. I've got to get Kirk playing absolute to the best of his ability that he has shown. Biggio's got to come in and contribute at the absolute top. Bichette's got to take another level. See what I'm saying? Like, everybody's got to come up. And what I fear is that everybody just says, well, Vlad is 2021 Vlad. The Jays are okay. No. One through nine, in my opinion, they all have to meet the best year on the back of their ball card. They've all got to do that at the same time for the 2021 Vlad to come out. Because, remember, that season in 21, he had another guy right next to him. They hit 45, I think it was, at Marcus mm-hmm. Simeon. So there, it, there is some balance there. I think Justin Turner is going to be a huge improvement to that. But to put it kind of all on Vlad's uh, table, I, I just, I'm, I'm a little lenient to do that. I'd love to see 850, 860, 870 OPS from George Springer, the $160 million player. I think it starts with him, and it just trickles right down through the lineup. 
I'm glad you mentioned Justin Turner because uh, I'm, I'm looking at Hazel May's Twitter feed right now, and I guess they just had availability with him about a couple hours ago, and, and he said that he heard Bo Bichette's interview uh, on Blair and Barker when Bo Bichette said that he would be a guy Shout that... Shout out Blair and Barker. Yeah, like, help him get the signing, <laughs> but said that he would be <laughs> a guy that the Blue Jays should be interested in, that he'd like his presence. He likes that he's a veteran. He's obviously been around the league, and he seems like a really fun guy, actually. He's been tweeting about the Leafs. Like, he's getting into the Toronto atmosphere and the fan base, so I I wonder for you what he brings to this team and where you'll see him utilize most. Yeah, intangibles are off the charts. We were together in Baltimore before he was claimed off of waivers by the Mets and just a pro's pro. And I think that's the greatest compliment you can give someone. He kind of reminds me of, of a Marcus Simeon type in terms of just uh, incredibly focused on the task at hand is going to show up. Uh, he might not run as fast as he used to, but the effort's always going to be there. The preparation's going to be there. This guy's a professional hitter, and he's seen every sequence possible. He's been through the wars, been through the battles. He's been to the top. He's also been to the bottom. And he's a guy that walks in and immediately has street cred. And I just think that's so important that when you walk into a clubhouse that people know what you've accomplished and they feel that they can approach him. And that's one of his greatest qualities, I think, is he's incredibly approachable, just a very humble human, yet he's accomplished so much in the game. Uh, he's going to really help out a lot of these Jays hitters. And these Jays hitters, they're not, they're not young, young spring chickens anymore. These guys are getting older, and it's time for them to kind of step into that professionalism in terms of uh, being able to, to put together three, four, five, six straight months and not have as drastic of dips. Well, that's the biggest thing in the big leagues is being able to limit the, uh, the, the valleys and extend the peaks. And Justin Turner is one of those guys that he's been able to just extend the peaks over his career and really limit the, the, the valleys. And that's just all mentality. And when it comes to being mental, like Yogi Berra said, the game is what 90% mental, the other half physical, it's 140% hard, but most of it's between the years. He brings a lot of that mentality and experience to the club. I think it's going to be a massive addition for him. Sportsnet's Blue Jays analyst, Caleb Joseph, on the line uh, with us. Um, so we kind of know the strength of this team is the the starting pitching, or at least was last year. Starting pitching was brilliant, definitely uh, what this team hung its hat on. Uh, are you ready to make the assumption that the Blue Jays in 2024 are just going to have good pitching? Like, is that a dangerous game to play, or is that something... That Blue Jays, like, complacency is not a great thing. But, I mean, we can't really affect based on how we feel how it's going to perform. But if you're a fan, should that be, like, the least of your issues or concerns? Or can things change uh, for a pitching staff just like that? Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen it. We've seen it on the reverse side. We've seen it both with, uh, with Barrios. We've seen Barrios come in and do very well. Then we've seen him not do so well. And last year we saw him do well again. And it... This game's tough. It's a very difficult game. The guys, I think somebody said it one time, uh, the guys on the other side, they drive nice cars too. And so they're getting paid to make adjustments as well. I, I would rest assured that the starting pitching is the least of the worries. Of course, you, you, you love what Kikuchi did last year. There is a possibility he could go backwards. I, I think confidence is such a huge thing for him. I think he gained a ton of it last year. I think he's going to come in being that same guy. I don't see Barrios going backwards at all. I feel like he has too much of a track record. I look at the the previous season, not last year, but the year before, and it was it looked like just a blip in the on the card. One of those outlier seasons. He looks to be legit. Obviously, Gosman knows what he's doing. He's to be counted on, 
and Bassett, he, he continually can reinvent himself. So when the league starts to make adjustments to Bassett, even though he doesn't have a 97-mile-an-hour fastball, his workability and pitchability is always going to allow him to be competitive as long as he has a location, and he's a really good locator of the baseball. So even we're not even talking about Manoa. If Manoa shows up and he's he's 10 and 10, I think that's a W, but I think mm-hmm. he's going to be even better, and they have a little bit of insurance on the back end as well. But I'm, I'm rest assured as a fan myself that their pitching, especially on the starting side, is, is going to be just fine. Last one for you, Caleb. Uh, what would you say the stakes uh, are for the season? Like, uh, it's too early to talk about consequences before one of 162 is played. But let's say uh-huh. it's not a different season at all. And, and there's no, uh, you know, there might be a playoff, but hey, we're still waiting on a playoff victory. It's been a long time. Uh, what happens for you? Like, does this team change materially if it doesn't work this time around? Yeah, it, a lot of it just depends on kind of the seasons that are put forth. Uh, I think the heavy focus is going to be the offense because of what we just talked about. And I believe that if each guy on the offensive side can get to their best year on the back of the ball card, they're going to be fine. Is that a lot to ask? Absolutely. But that's what it takes to win a world championship in the big leagues. So many things have to go right. If it doesn't, I think you got to really internally look at what is going on and see if you're possibly overvaluing, undervaluing, et cetera, et cetera, and then start to make changes. And this has happened numerous times in the sports world in Toronto. I mean, look at the Leafs. Like it's, I hate to like jump over. Right. But I mean, you really believe in the guys, you really believe in the guys, but there's just, there's not much to show for it. And they've already tried a managerial change. They're trying some other inter uh, organizational changes here. And so, uh, yeah, I believe in them, but something has to be really different for all these guys to click for an extended period of time. Do I think they have the intangibles? Yes, it's now about actually doing it, and until they actually do it, there's always going to be question marks. But I do think they can. I think they're ready. I think they're hungry, and we'll have to see. Well, Caleb, we appreciate you getting on with us early here. Spring training just around the corner. Uh, Blue Jays back on Sportsnet on Saturday for their first game. We're looking forward to chatting with you, hopefully weekly, as the season begins here, Caleb. Awesome. Justin, thanks so much. Thanks so much. We'll chat soon. That's Caleb Joseph, uh, Blue Jays analyst here for us at Sportsnet. Um, I'm really excited about Justin Turner in terms of his, like, discussions with the media. It's only been a couple days he's been down there, but I'm seeing a lot of really interesting, insightful quotes from him. Mm. I, I was reading something, and I, we didn't get a chance to talk to him, uh, Caleb about it, but he, Justin Turner was talking about all the free agents that are still available in MLB right now. A Cy Young winner, all-stars, batting title winners, rookie of the year, free agency market is stacked with people. And he said, you know, it's a black eye on baseball that these guys haven't found a spot yet and kind of calls out a little bit of, I, I guess it's like a three-headed three-pronged issue the negotiating with the agents and a lot of them happen to be one specific agent but he doesn't mention that but like maybe there's an ownership reluctance to spend maybe people are all kind of in the murky middle where is your team going to go all in can they afford that should they wait a while but like i think that this as a guy that's put up that many games caleb says he's a pro's pro he's using his platform at least talk about some things that i think you know are are, are, you can only talk about from a position of knowledge you know you're not gonna have a young Bobichet talking about that, but Justin Turner understands like that this process is taking a bit longer than usual. 
there's still a lot of big names like Matt Chapman hasn't signed anywhere. There's some, some massive names out there on the market. So I thought it was interesting. It looks like he's getting a lot of opportunity to talk to the media in Toronto. Uh, and the fact that he called out Blair and Barker's interview with Bo Bichette, I think that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, someone who's taking that look at the game uh, right now, uh, it, it kind of shows you what we expected or kind of knew about Justin Turner, that mm-hmm. some of that leadership quality, some of that experience, some of that maturity is what's going to be infiltrating the Blue Jays clubhouse with this signing specifically so it's good to have like that's i don't know if it's like comforting if you're a blue jays fan but like clearly they've been missing a little bit of that and if this guy can kind of like be the barometer kind of capture the essence of what a baseball team uh is and what should feel what it should feel like and what it does to maintain that professionalism like again we might be making too much of a scrum where he's speaking about others who are unemployed at this at this time but clearly this guy's been around knows the game knows the situation, knows how to be in a clubhouse. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm really, I am bullish on the Justin Turner acquisition. I just don't know if it's enough to change the team yeah. in, in terms of where it needs to be changed. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, there are going to be no complaints from me unless he starts really, really uh, well, brutally. I, even... uh, but there are no complaints from me out the ba- uh, uh, off the bat here. Because I, I do think in more ways than one, he's going to be a positive addition. The fact that Caleb Joseph used the Marcus Semien type addition in terms that's of the, exactly that's what i want from justin turner not I, i'm not talking about his on field like marcus Semien was but like yeah that's the, that's the type of teammate i think need. they needed to bring in it's like when the blue or when the maple leafs like swung for a lot of these vets and it didn't really they didn't stay they didn't sink their teeth in might marcus, not have had the desired effect and marcus Semien didn't sink his teeth in either but if we're talking about Justin Turner in the way that we're talking about Marcus Semien, who was beloved by everyone, who came in and really, I think, made an impact on the young players on this team, who were Bo and Vlad at that period of time where so much was on their shoulders, I would be so happy to have dialogue around the same thing with uh, Justin Turner. It is an interesting point about, you know, how baseball operates now and the lack of like, like, you know, the NHL, we always complain about salary cap, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that those parameters are in there, like it may, it maintains employment. Whereas MLB owners can just be like, ah, let's let's chill on the spending, guys. Yeah. And now it results in a lot of people who should have jobs not having jobs. It is worth thinking about. Um, all right, we're gonna take a quick break. On the other side, we're gonna talk to Frank Saravelli. We're gonna wrap up our Family Day fan pregame with Arjun Namala. And as a reminder, awesome four episodes are deb- debuting on Sportsnet of this brand new series, Indian Baseball Dreams, a four part docu series. From the MLB, uh, Monday, February 26th, will be the first edition of this. It's one of the stars of it. Can't wait to talk to him about uh, his future, hopefully, with the Toronto Blue Jays. But what it feels right now to be the first round pick in the 2023 MLB draft from the Toronto Blue Jays. All that to come on the Fan Pre-Game. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back on the Fan Pregame Family Day Edition. One hour remains on Sportsnet 360, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Uh, so there's been hockey on all day, which is sometimes a nice treat, right? Leafs were at one, the trickle effect throughout the day. There was a crazy, crazy game on uh, while we were prepping. The end of it was the Wild coming back to beat the Canucks. Was it 10-7? 10-7 final. Now that was uh, record-breaking in many ways. First NHL game to feature three 
hat tricks from th- obviously from three different players. Unless mm-hmm. you're, you know, Austin Matthew might get a double hat trick one day, but three hat tricks first time since 1992. That would have been a crazy game to be at. Yeah, it definitely would have. And a big come from behind win for the Minnesota mm-hmm. Wild as well. I mean, I don't even know if we should have the rest of our show. Can we just go live stream Rick Tockett right now? Because his head <laughs> might explode after a 10-7 loss in Minnesota. That's a wild one. Uh, Frank Cervelli joins us, president of hockey content at dailyfaceoff.com. Happy President's Day slash Family Day here. Um, I hope you're celebrating by watching that wild, wild Canucks game uh, that was a 10-7 finish. Do Stanley Cup contenders give up 10 goals? I don't know. It's a good question, Alish. I was going to say, don't count out the Minnesota Wild just yet in the Western Conference playoff race. Ooh. All right. So what happened in that one? Because we were we were prepping for the show. We just see the box score, and it was kind of crazy. I know sometimes daytime games get an easy excuse because the prep is different, and, you know, it's a holiday. No, that was just a, a wild one. What excuse? I mean, look, <laughs> sometimes games go haywire, but I don't, I don't know if it had anything to do with the time of day that it was played right. or the prep that went into it, but... I love seeing games like that mm-hmm. all over the map. Uh, three hat tricks. Uh, everyone's trying to do their best Austin Matthews impression, which is mm-hmm. really what it comes down to. Uh, let's start there. Let's start with Austin Matthews then, because we watched him in person mm-hmm. uh, on Saturday night, and it was just ridiculous. Scores again in a win over the St. Louis Blues today on pace for 75 or 76 goals uh, based on, what do you call it, optimus versus pessimist? That's You're correct. Trying to put yourself I'm the in the optimist bucket. Um, Try to put myself in it. You know I am. Uh, if you got to say it, maybe. It's is that how you true. guys are counting the... The decimal point? Yes. Optimist versus pessimist? Yes, basically. It's closer to the optimist side. In the world, like on (laughs) spreadsheets, you just call that rounding, but I don't know what you guys are doing there. Rounding up, rounding down. Uh, (laughs) It's based on personality here. Uh, So clearly Austin Matthews is having an immensely special season or these pockets of goal scoring are just like nothing we've seen before. But it's setting up, if you'd let it, to be an unbelievable Hart Trophy race with Connor McDavid, who's on pace for 100 assists, Nikita Rukutrov leading the league. Everyone's already t- said that Nathan McKinnon's going to win the Hart Trophy mm-hmm. based on what we've seen from the first half. So are we setting up towards something special here? Like, is it going to be the most impossible vote for voters that we've seen, at least in recent years? It's going to be the most fun vote, I'll tell you that, um, because you mentioned four authentic candidates, and I want to throw one more into the mix who isn't really talked about enough, in my opinion, in terms of the Hart Trophy race, but should absolutely be deserving of consideration. And that's Connor Hellebuck of the Winnipeg Jets. Mm -hmm. I'm typically not one to throw in a goalie on my ballot. I'm like, you know what? They've got their own award, and goalies are so incredibly important to team success that if we were really truly having a most valuable player debate, then guess what? your ballot would be five goalies every year because they are each team's most valuable player. You can't win without them. But when I'm looking at this Hart Trophy race, as special as these four forwards have been, and and I would argue in some ways, and for different reasons, you know, McKinnon's 26-game home point streak, (laughs) all these different amazing, ridiculous stats, I wonder if they're kind of virtually indistinguishable from one another and that in this case, it might open up the door for someone like Hellebuck, who's not just having his best season, but I think one of the best goaltending seasons we've seen from anyone in the salary cap era, when you consider goals uh, saved above expected, um, all those underlying numbers and what Hellebuck has meant to a Jets team that has scored 
almost 60 fewer goals than the teams that are leading their division. They're doing it on the back of Hellebuck this year. So it's going to come down to ultimately, I mean, your feeling on the matter. Uh, and you're one of many voters, obviously, Frank. Um, but are there like checkpoints or certain totals, milestones that are just sort of undeniable? Like does a 70, like 70 goal, goals. Does 70 goal, does 150 <laughs> points just automatically get you that if you, if you win the scoring race? Is there something for Hellebuck that's easily like, oh, that's a, that is a target that just, mm-hmm. it's so undeniable. And that's a little bit tougher because we're talking about goals saved above expected, but maybe wins plus a certain save percentage, 930. I don't know what it might be, but is there something that's just like, okay, that's the trump card. There isn't for me, and and frankly, I don't think there should be as absolutely impressive as 70 goals would be. I don't know that that just means, okay, everyone else, you can stop playing now. Austin Matthews has won the Hart Trophy. Like, that's probably not the way that it should be. But I'll fully acknowledge that that's a big reason why he won the Hart Trophy a few years ago, getting to 60. It's something we hadn't seen in a long, long time. And I think that helped put his candidacy over the top in a year in which Connor McDavid at the time had set new career bests in goals, assists, and points. So I think you start to play a dangerous game when you get to that point, trying to hit certain milestones. Um, 70 will be really tough to top. Um, But I didn't hear anyone saying last year when McDavid got to 64 that, oh, all of a sudden, you know, we have to give McDavid the trophy now because he got to 64. Mm. 64 and 70, aside from just being a really nice round number, because you guys are into that sort of thing. Oh, we are. um, That it's, is it really all that different than 64? I mean, Mm. I guess. 70 is different than 64. For Austin Matthews, it's two more nights. That's all. That is. Maybe, yeah. For a hard trophy season. Well, it could be something. Uh, I'm looking at the live odds. As of per our conversation right now, 35 to 1 for Connor Hellebuck. We'll see when we get off and people start betting. We might be, uh, we might be screwed here. So get on it while you can. Uh, we're talking to Frank Saravelli of dailyfaceoff.com. Uh, this weekend, outdoor games. I am one that thinks that there are too many um, outdoor games, but I'll tell you, the stadium series really impressed me, whether it was just the back-to-back days, the 80,000 people, the idea of having this local market kind of all in on it, the rivalry between the fan bases, it it really did impress me. So I don't know where you stand on on outdoor games, but I think that was a really impressive showing. I mean, if you have 150,000 people willing to pack an enormous stadium two consecutive days... Who's to say no? Like, Mm -hmm. who's saying no to that moving forward? So there's a reason why that was the 41st uh, NHL outdoor game played. There's a reason why there will be more. I don't think, you know, you can overdo it based on the market. Like, I think it would be a mistake to try and replicate. I saw some people bandying uh, about on social media saying, hey, with these four teams in the you know, New York, New Jersey, Mm -hmm. Philly metro area that you should just play, you know, some sort of tournament outdoors every year as part of a regular season fixture. And I'm like, no, no, at some point people will get tired of that. But whether it was the New Jersey Devils coming in with their uh, mafioso theme, (laughs) which I wholeheartedly appreciate because I'm right now rewatching the Sopranos from the very beginning, Um, or whether it's, you know, the different facets of the actual games themselves, which were, by the way, two really good Mm -hmm. hockey games and entertaining. I mean, why, why, like, there's no reason to try and put a damper or a limit on it. It should be something unique and different. 
And I actually like that the difference is this time around, they really embrace the New Jersey part mm-hmm. of it. And how many times are people really trumpeting New Jersey? Uh, I think Soprano style is back, by the way. I think I need one of those uh, zip oh, ups. Uh, it was, you didn't like Jack Hughes. Look, actually, yeah, you're cool. not Jack Hughes. Well, I could I could try. You could pull it off. I Thank mean, you, Frank. Thank right. you, Frank. Yeah. Okay, I mean, so we're no- not giving you a passport, but like, <laughs> <laughs> you uh, could be part of the club for a day. The stadium series was uh, one of just uh, several big events, really, over the weekend. Another one was Yarmer Yager getting recognized mm-hmm. uh, by the you Pittsburgh Penguins. You could pull Penguins off a mullet. I'll give you that. At last. I think, I don't know how many Penguins pulled off the mullet, but they did this try so fun. Uh, during warm-up. Uh, here's a, I might not be onto something here at all, Frank, but I feel like the quirkiness of Yarmer Yager, the guy who you know, wanted to play and keeps playing until he's, you know, 55 and so on and so forth, sort of has overshadowed his greatness. And until maybe not even after the the recognition that he got over the weekend, that we kind of slept on his greatness because the first thing that comes to mind with Yager is, wow, he's so different than everybody else. Is that is that a poor take? Is uh, the importance of him being recognized uh, something that uh, at least should, you know, put all that aside just a little bit, where it was a reminder over the weekend how much how dominant he was, how much he meant to that franchise, and, and how good he really is, even though if we haven't seen the best of him over the last 25 years of him playing professionally. Yeah, I would say that's just in a surface-level take is, is what I'll call that. Um, and I, I appreciate where you're heading with it, but I think there was so much nuance packed into not just what Yarmer Yager is, but also his relationship with that fan base and really how difficult it was for a period of time. And I'm not just talking about his return with the Philadelphia Flyers to the NHL, which I had a front seat and was able to witness and actually spent that year uh, covering the team uh, just in awe of Yammer Yager and how, you know, genuine he was as a human being, which I think you got a lot, you got a glimpse of a lot of that this weekend in which, by the way, it was a pretty flawless four days for the Pittsburgh Penguins mm. in terms of how it all unfolded, but also, you know, fractured in the way that he went out. Like he was paid an enormous sum of money by the Penguins. They couldn't really afford him anymore. Quite literally, his his contract was a huge chunk of the total franchise value. They were swimming in debt and they needed to make a trade that they didn't really want to make. And I think there was a lot that went into um, his relationship with the city, his relationship with teammates and the fan base. It just There was a lot connected to it, and I think he was nervous to come back. I think there was a huge chunk of him that said, you know, this is the way this you know fan base treated me when I returned. How will they accept me when I kind of come home for the first time, so to speak, in, in so long? And I think you saw the answer, and you saw the answer from his teammates. And he really represents one of just the most amazing stories, I think, in, in the NHL in history. And it's not just for his longevity and his ability to play 27 goals as a 43-year-old. It's not necessarily about that or or ranking number two all-time in points and how many games he's piled up and all those amazing, incredible career statistics and achievements. But I think one of the real hallmarks of Yarmer Yager and his tenure is also how much he changed as a human being um, and came back from Russia so much more grateful and appreciative of all the things that he was able to accomplish and what he gave back to his teammates, even if not necessarily in, in lessons, but just an example. It's 
I don't know that we've ever seen anything quite like it. And to listen to him speak and and share that, um, it's it's really impressive. And so he's going to go down as as an all time legend, not just for all those points and milestones, but for all the growth that he had in between. And a legend for his comment about his girlfriend being too young to remember him playing in Pittsburgh was, oh, it was funny. <laughs> One of the great all-time quotes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and and not even really meant to be a flex, but just, It was yes, funny. It, I laughed out loud. A, a comment usually reserved for kids. Yeah. Uh, for those who have kids a little bit older <laughs> uh, is different for Yarmor Yager, but everything's different with Yarmor yeah. Yager, I suppose. It was a good, it was a great, a great event, a great showing. Uh, I enjoyed watching it. Um, Let's talk a little bit more about the Penguins, actually, that were on this. Kyle Dubas, so obviously we know him well. He's got a new opportunity with Pittsburgh, but it hasn't gone as swimmingly as as probably predicted. I wonder, like, where you think the pressure index is on him right now to make something happen, either pre-trade deadline or in the next, I guess, season. Jake Gensel's injury, if that's concerning at all in terms of being a trade char- target, being a trade chip, and, like, what Dubas should be doing in the next couple weeks. Well, the pressure index that he's feeling specifically is mm-hmm. got to be incredibly low. He's mm-hmm. in the first year of a seven-year deal. And the temperature should be turned up a bit based on the way the season went sideways, including the Eric Carlson trade. Yeah. I mean, you now have a team that um, on paper should have been significantly better after acquiring a 100-point defenseman. But you've also now compounded the problem that had existed there in Pittsburgh for so long, which is continuing to move future assets for immediate success and gratification and to try and chase another playoff run or a deep playoff run with this core that you've assembled and committed so many dollars to. Now, a lot of that happened before he got there, but the Carlson trade really kind of doubled down on all of it. So now you're sitting here in a year in which you're likely to miss the playoffs for the second year in a row in which Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin have both been mm-hmm. healthy, which hasn't happened often in the last 10 years. Malkin has is struggling through a drought. I think he has two goals in his last 18 games. And you're now facing a second straight spring without the playoffs and no future assets or prospects to speak of. So, there's no denying it. There's no sugarcoating. We are heading for, you know, a decade of darkness that the Pittsburgh Penguins haven't seen since before Marc-Andre Fleury popped into town, which is obviously, you know, the last player still remaining from the pre-salary cap era. It's been a long time and they've had a tremendous run of success, but Jake Gensel, I personally don't think his injury is impacted, uh, impacts his trade value, because teams know what he is and provided that, you know, it is true to that timeline, they're going to have plenty of time to get him back in time for a playoff run. He's the only hope you have right now on this current roster to really cash in and begin getting back some of those assets that you so desperately need. It's kind of a black and white issue to me. Do we keep him? Do we, you know, go on or try and go on a run they're way back now at this point. Mm-hmm. They haven't shown any evidence or signs that they can be a complete team and compete for a playoff spot that I think you have to move on. So if it's bleak, the future in your eyes here, Frank, um, and you mentioned, you know, pressure index is low. One of seven, you're getting paid regardless. It's good to be Kyle Dubas in terms of, uh, you know, employment status and, and the income that's coming in. But if you come in here and you're supposed to fix the final few seasons of this uh, this regime that brought you so much success, 
Like, is this going to get ugly? Is this going to get nasty? Is this, or, or, or is there going to be like a little revolt here? Like, what do you expect if nothing good comes out of Kyle Dubas's arrival here in Pittsburgh and everyone's talking about how we're wasting Sidney Crosby's career or wasting the end of Malkin and Latang? Like, what's going to happen here if all you see is, if you don't think this is a winning situation for Kyle Dubas and the Penguins? Well, there's, first off, there's a reason why he got seven years. And it's because everyone kind of universally understood that when taking the job, there was very likely to be one of the toughest jobs in the league, if not also the worst, because you have to deal with a lot of that shrapnel that's heading in your direction. And I would say part of it is it's not really his fault. Um, these, these issues that the Penguins are running into now are compounded from two 10 years ago in not Ron Hextall, but the end of the Jim Rutherford era. And it's not a knock against him. They tried to do everything they could to compete and they just traded away a ton of future assets and, and prospects. There's nothing left. There's nothing left to continue to, to build on. So um, Kyle Dubas may be smart, but he's not a miracle worker. And, you know, where it goes next and how difficult it might be. Um, he knew full well, eyes wide open going into the job, what this would entail and the next part is, you know, for Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin and Chris Letang and the whole group that's still there and kind of left holding the bag, and I'll include um, Eric Carlson in that mix as well under contract for the next three seasons at $10 bucks. Um, this is part of the deal. You know that if, you know, as we say all the time, do you think Nathan McKinnon right now cares about draft picks that the Colorado mm-hmm. Avalanche might be trading at the deadline to get better? you know, you understand that as a player that at some point that mortgage is going to become due. And for the Penguins after three Stanley cups and a 17 year playoff run, that time just happens to be coming sooner rather than later. Chatting with Frank Cervelli of dailyfaceoff.com. I got one last one for you here. March 8th trade deadline. Of course, there's a great article up at daily Faceoff about the history of like how GMs traditionally react around this trade deadline. And I think it's a, it's an interesting way to contrast which GM might be put in a scenario where they have to do something counter than what they've done in the past, whether they have to be buyers when they're usually sellers, where they have to be a bit more aggressive, maybe um, where they've been put in a situation that they're not really familiar with. Like who does that, who comes to mind when I talk about a GM that might be approaching uncharted territory come March 8th? I think one that stands out for me who's typically been very conservative and rightfully so with how well his team has drafted is Jim Nill of the Dallas Stars. Mm -hmm. I look at that Stars team and I say just A-plus, ready to compete for a cup. Um, They've got, you know, depth all over their lineup. They can play multiple different ways, and I think their game is so easily translatable to uh, playoff hockey Will he get aggressive? Will he go out and and be someone that is, you know, turning over mattresses to try and get this team there by whatever means necessary? Um, What about Colorado and Chris McFarland, who doesn't have a deep history, but, you know, you look at this avalanche lineup without some of their key performers, you might get Gabriel Landeskog back. Um, You know, no one knows what's happening um, in terms of Nachushkin and and that situation, will he return at some point? And how do you fix or help Alexander Georgiev in the goaltending department? You know, there's lots of teams that I think you can ask those questions about, you know, sort of counter to what the norm is. 
And then you have Brad Tree living kind of squarely in the middle of all of that. Mm -hmm. Someone who's typically involved in just about everything, but is kind of doing so right now with, you know, at least one hand tied behind his back in terms of assets and ability to make things happen that as much as he might want to improve this team and try and give Austin Matthews and this core, which has you know, basically been carrying the rest of the team. Oh, and oh by the way, 19, two and one without Morgan Riley. Maybe they just need to trade Morgan Riley. <laughs> I mean, the, the numbers are insane. 19, two and one. And I think, it's like th- they have 35 wins or something uh, all, you know, and, and mm-hmm. a great record in the history without Morgan Riley. I don't know what all that means. <laughs> we did talk, by the way, that this might be a pivotal, you know, mm-hmm. 10 day or two week stretch while he's suspended. Um, it looks like they're answering a lot of questions, mm-hmm. which would make him probably want to be pretty aggressive. But how do you do it without the assets? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's going to be an interesting couple of weeks, March 8th, just around the corner. Frank, I appreciate you coming on today. Happy holiday. Uh, however you celebrate President's Day, um, we celebrate Family Day. So you're part of our family. So we appreciate you coming on. Oh, thanks, guys. Thanks. Have a good night. We'll see you soon. Uh, Frank Cervelli of DailyFaceoff.com, president of Hockey Content there. It was very sincere of you. But yeah. I, I wonder, uh, of course, you're part of our family. I wonder how Penguins fans would view his answer there like it it wasn't like kyle dubas apologist hour in any way Mm -hmm. but kyle dubas comes into pittsburgh and it's like oh you you know you're tasked with uh the final few years of Sidney crosby and making sure that the franchise is in a good position (laughs) when Sidney crosby's gone like those Mm -hmm. are the objectives right it's pretty clear you got seven years to do it here's a lot of money get comfortable that's great but he goes out, and he, for the first time in a long time, had cap flexibility. He had some money to spend. He went and spent it on Eric Carlson, who, you know, 100 points, Norris Trophy, all that. It's great stuff. Riley Smith. Both of them have not worked at all. In fact, it's made the team, I guess by record, although I'm saying this anecdotally, probably worse, right? Mm. The Pittsburgh Penguins in a worse spot than they were last year. They're one win away from getting into the playoffs last year. How is that, like, acceptable at all? You had the I chance to make the is. team better. You swung you missed. The team is worse and we are actively wasting Sidney Crosby. And, and you know, it's like, yeah, he got time. He's got seven years. No, pro- no problem at all. Like, if I'm in Pittsburgh right now, I'm furious. Mm-hmm. These are important years. I do not want to see Sidney Crosby just have a read-through final chapter of his career. But if you're just like, well, it didn't work. We got Riley Smith and Eric Carlson now. And we got Kyle Dubas for six more seasons. Like, that's cool. And I also don't think Sidney Crosby... Will go quietly into the God, end of his career. Not. It's it's it's, it's and it look comes, how well he's playing this it year. Comes down to that thing. Like yeah. is Sidney Crosby just going to be like, oh, I can, what can I do? No, not, no, I really hope not. I don't think he's that type of guy. I don't think he is, but I also think he's immensely loyal and is never going to wear another jersey. But he might put the pressure somehow, unspoken, spoken behind closed doors. Like, if you want me to end my career in this city and wear this jersey and be one of the fix, greatest of fix all time, the fix mistakes it. you made. Fix yeah. it. Is that Sidney Crosby better be able to say that in Pittsburgh? He's got the cash in yeah, to do it. I think of all people, he's probably top of the list that deserves to say it in their franchise. He's, Man, he's given a lot uh, to the, that place. The apathy to, well, it didn't work. So see you in six years. Like, oh, I'm not, I'm just not okay with it. Quickly, Connor Hellebuck and the Hart Trophy. That one caught me a little bit off guard with Frank Cervelli. I just, I don't know. The last time a goalie won the Hart was when. Carey Price. Was a long time ago. Wasn't it? People were scoring not as many goals as Austin. Different game. Gary Price was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just think the the four or five guys ahead of him 
even though the arguments kind of start to contrast each other where it's like, well, what's 70 goals versus 100 assists versus being consistent? It's they are all so much better. Um, I, no, I don't want to discredit Connor Hellebuck, but I think it would take an absolute miracle for him to to lap everybody in the race already. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Uh, I'm looking at his stats uh, and goal saved above average a bit different uh, than what we're accustomed to, but leading that by a fairly firm margin, although second is Joey Decorda, Seattle. So maybe that, I mean, it's a good stat. It means a lot, but if you're, if Joey Decorda's number two, then maybe we got to take it with a little bit of grain of salt, but 927 save percentage, mm-hmm. 2.13 goals against average. He's got the numbers that would be like, okay, immense value. Here's the Vezda trophy. Yeah, hard to, well, hard we'll to value to, a hard we'll, trophy. We can compare, uh, during the break, we'll compare a little bit to Carey Price mm-hmm. and what Carey Price was able to do when he won it, think about 10 years ago. Um, but right now, to go Hellebuck over 70 goals and that's a maybe. To go Hellebuck over 150 points, I think three players have a chance of doing that. I think it's going to be difficult for me to get there. Also, Laurent Brassois has like similar numbers in a backup role, which says, hey, the defense Getting for that, Winnipeg. What are the is odds good. on Laurent Brasso? <laughs> Brassois. Not, Brassois. Not very good. He's probably got to play more games. But right now, you can like barely separate those two. And I think that tells you a little bit. It's yeah, like a kind of does. a system here. Connor Hellbuck's obviously awesome, amazing, yeah, best goaltender in the world, worthy Vesna Trophy winner. But can I thrust him into that Hart Trophy conversation? I probably can't. All right. Uh, well, it's going to be a fun debate for the rest of the season in terms of who's going to take home that trophy. Uh, we got another half hour here on the fan pregame on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet 590. The fan, we're going to be joined by Arjun Namala, Jay's first round pick in the 2023 MLB draft. Uh, we mentioned a little earlier, Sportsnet will be airing airing a wonderful series beginning this month, four-part series uh, debuting on Sportsnet. MLB commissioned this docuseries called Indian Baseball Dreams. It's going to tell the story of first-generation Indian-American Arjun Amala, who was selected in the first round of the 2023 MLB draft by your Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, so lots of excitement to come, and his story is incredible. Uh, it will be told in four parts. We will get his talk on the other side. And by the way, Blair and Barker return tomorrow at 11 a.m. So the boys are back in town. You join the text line, thank him, yes. thank them, <laughs> for the Justin Turner acquisition because he was listening. I can't wait to hear it. Okay, uh, half an hour left on the fan pregame after the break. Hey, it's Ben Ennis. And I'm Brent Gunning. We got you covered on all things Leafs, Raptors, and Blue Jays every weekday morning, 6 to 9. It's the Fan Morning Show, Sportsnet 590 The Fan, and wherever you get your podcasts. We are back on the fan pregame, Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet 590. The fan, Ailish and Justin here for the next half hour to wrapping up our family day double duty show. An extra hour crammed in there. Lots of people to talk to. Lots of new faces joining our show, including uh, Blue Jays' first round draft pick in the 2023 MLB draft. We've been talking about an awesome series uh, that is going to debut here on Sportsnet on February, uh, February 26th, uh, Monday night. It'll be a four-part docuseries, MLB commissioned, called Indian Baseball Dreams that will tell the fir- the story of first-generation Indian-American, Arjun Damala, selected in the first round of the Toronto Blue Jays, of course. And he joins us now. Arjun, thanks so much for jumping on. How does it feel to be a superstar? <laughs> uh, it feels good, but thank you guys for having me. Of course. Uh, we're really excited to get a chance to chat with you and help share uh, what's going to be an amazing series coming out. So let's just talk about being a part of this docuseries, what it means for you personally with your background and opportunity to tell your story and hopefully inspire more people to have their story told one day. 
Yeah, I think it means a lot, you know, not only um, the docu-series, but being able to go back to India, see everyone, see my family, and also see how much baseball has grown as a sport in India. I think it, it was an amazing experience, and the docu-series is also really amazing, so it's a must-watch for sure. <laughs> so is there a little pressure? I mean, MLB commissioning a, a docu-series around you, four parts, uh, first-round pick, of course, that's a lot of pedigree, but I don't think every first-round pick gets that sort of attention. Like, is there a little extra pressure based on that? Did it kind of fuel you a little bit? Yeah, I mean, you could put it like that, but to, to be honest, I don't think that um, I take very much pressure in it. It's just me playing the sport that I love and trying to get to the highest levels that I can. So, of course, there is going to be a little uh, going to be a little bit of pressure, but I don't think I'm really taking too much. There you go. You said the game you love, and that's the most important thing, right? I mean, that's what drives you. Uh, I, I wonder, like, when you fell in love with the sport is is one thing, but when you felt like it was possible for you to do something special in the sport, like when, what time or what age were you when that was, uh, you know, an occurrence to you? Was there a moment? Like, when did you feel like, hey, I'm going to make this baseball thing work? <laughs> I think um, I kind of realized that at a, at a pretty young age, you know, 12 is when I really thought that, you know, I had a chance at baseball, you know, I was pretty good then and just going forward, uh, worked as hard as I can, you know, with the people around me and we're in a good spot now going forward. So I think that's kind of when I re- when I realized that, you know, there's a chance for sure. Uh, I've been reading a lot. You've been doing a lot of media. So we've had a great article up on sportsnet.ca. Um that talks a lot about your family. And I think that's really important because uh, you're still young. You still get an opportunity to reflect on like the, the opportunity that your parents gave you. I uh, got to learn a little bit about them in our sportsnet.ca article. But when you're going through this process, like how important has family been for you, whether it's just getting into the sporting world because both your parents have had athletic backgrounds and supporting you when you make this journey to the MLB and get to be a part of a docuseries. Like what's it like to have two supportive parents that have helped you on this? Oh, it's it's amazing. It's so important for sure. I think that every kid needs supporting parents, you know, just having them around me is it's uh, something that I've always cherished. You know, they've supported everything that I wanted to do going forward and um, they're going to continue to. So I think having that having them have me play baseball at a young age and going forward, I think, um, you know, it's super important. Having their um, support was amazing. Yeah. And I know that baseball wasn't always the the one sport. Cricket was really important in your household and your father played. And so I wonder, like, the dynamic between cricket and baseball and um, how they actually help each other out in, in your journey and how fun it was to have a little bit of a, a both hands in both sports there. Yeah, so my dad, when he was in India, he played a whole bunch of cricket mm-hmm. in high school, college. And um, coming to America, he didn't really know baseball was a sport. So, of course, first thing I started was cricket. And um, baseball and cricket have their similarities. So I think... There definitely was um, a um, overlay, and like I got a lot better because of cricket. You know, having cricket background kind of put me up for success in baseball as well. So they're very similar, and it's definitely something that helped me. Yeah. So when did you? When were you playing cricket? I started playing cricket like right before I played baseball. I played in India. Whenever we went back to India, I always played cricket um, with my dad in the backyard with my brother. So I've actually been playing cricket my whole life. I still do to this day, oh, just nice. not competitively like baseball. <laughs> yeah. So when you came back, like let's say, you know, everyone has their off season, right? Even when you're eight years, nine years old, you have an off season. You come back, you've been playing cricket all summer. Would you just like a leg up on the competition? Like those swings kind of transferred in some <laughs> ways and you were able to like maybe expedite your, your developmental process? Yeah, definitely. Like, Especially when I was younger, we would go back to India a lot. And in India, there wasn't really baseball, not not till now. But um, it's just it's, it was all cricket. So coming back, you know, um, I wouldn't say the swing because the swings are definitely different. But, you know, um, bat, like how you handle the bat, things like that. There's a lot of um, 
things that definitely helped me have an advantage for sure. So the process of uh, making and participating in this docu-series, I-, I wonder if there was something unexpected, something meaningful, a conversation you had, someone you met, something that stands out and was, you know, really, really resonated uh, while you were going through this process and participating in it. Yeah, I think um, an extremely more important part was meeting uh, Ajinkya Rahana. He's a cricket player that played for Team India, Test Team, National Team, all those type of things. So he's he's a very well-known um, figure in India and, I think the biggest thing I really took away from him was that for to him, success meant being able to put in the work and do as much as he can every day to get better at what he wanted to do. So I think that is definitely the biggest, one of the biggest things that I've taken away from the docuseries. Yeah, it certainly seems that way when when others speak about their small interactions with you, whether it was your opportunity to play here at the Rogers Center and to meet some of the Blue Jays staff, like maturity and, and being ahead of the game is, is something that you obviously, you champion and you've been doing that yourself. And, and I was reading on our article on sportsnet.ca that your favorite player growing up was Francisco Lindor. And I, I wonder for you, you got an opportunity to play, I think it was in high school, to share a field with him. Um, but, you know, what was that experience like? What was it like being able to be alongside somebody that you're hopefully trying to idolize a similar career path with yeah I mean it's amazing mm-hmm. you know um ever since I was a kid I used to I, I love Francisco Lindor yeah. still do he used to be my uh, lock screen on my phone <laughs> so we somehow you know we kind of um got put with the same agency mm-hmm. love the agency great people and uh, I was able to practice with him and I still do the off seasons I'm definitely gonna spend a lot of time with Lindor and a lot of other good players so just being able to share a field with my idol has been something that <laughs> You know, not a lot of people get to do. So it's definitely, I, I've been taking it all in for sure. Uh, chatting with Arjun Namala, Blue Jays first round pick in the 2023 MLB draft. Okay, so this docuseries is airing on SportsSense, airing on MLB Network. A lot of people are going to see it. But if you had to put it in front of one person, who do you want to see it? Is it someone uh, playing baseball where you grow up? Is it someone who might be a Blue Jays fan? Is it a family member? If you could put it in front of someone's eyes, who are you choosing? I think... It'd have to be my parents, you know, not just one of them. I think it'd have to be both of them because they've allowed me to get this far in my life. And without them, it wouldn't be the same. So just, you know, for them to watch and, you know, be happy, you know, it'd mean a lot to me. So you have an opportunity to be in the Blue Jays world now. Uh, It's been a short opportunity so far. But the idea of playing for Toronto, playing for an entire country, like that's a rare thing. And not every MLB team gets to say that they are their country's team. So what excites you best about being a part of the Blue Jays organization and what that could hopefully unfold for you? I'm super excited for all of it. You know, after the draft, I kind of realized that Toronto is a, it's a big diverse culture Mm -hmm. and the people are very loving, great people. And they all, you know, the sports there is, everyone's a, everyone's a part of the sports. Everyone's loves each sport, like the Raptors, the Blue Jays, everyone loves it. So being able to share the atmosphere with my teammates and know more about Toronto and kind of be supported by a whole um, country is going to be amazing. How many times have you been up here? Once only after the draft. Just once, eh? Okay. Yeah. It was amazing. That's awesome. What did you learn in in your one trip here? Like I said earlier, you know, it's it's very diverse. You know, we I came to the game. It was the Diamondbacks versus Blue Jays game, and just it was so packed with so many different people who just share a love for the game. So that's definitely the biggest thing I learned. Have you been up in the winter yet? (laughs) I guess it wasn't winter when you came. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was like 
end of July, so it was oh, definitely yeah. not the winter. Not, well, not it, yet. it was about minus 10 this morning. Uh, this last week, we got a big dumping of snow. So things to look forward to in your uh, future with the Blue Jays, but you might get to spend some of the winters uh, in warmer climates. Uh, what was the experience like so far with the Blue Jays? I know it's been brief. I know you've had an opportunity to hopefully chat with some of the players, chat with the staff, um, see the facilities. But like, what's impressed you most about the way the Blue Jays carry themselves? I think um, what's impressed me the most is just people overall. You know, the the staff, the coaches, the the people, they just carry themselves to a very high standard. And everyone's just so loving and supportive of each other. So I think that's something that the Blue Jays have that make me very proud and happy to be with them. All right, let's hype up Blue Jays fans. Uh, How is Arjun Namala going to help this team one day? I think... um, you know, Arjun Amal is going to be is going to be impact player. You know, I think I have um, the ability to, you know, steal bases, hit for power, be a good defender. I just think that I'm going to be able to um, do as much as I can for the team and get us to as far as we can and to hopefully a World Series win. You know, it's been a while. So definitely I think that is something that's going to be possible in the future. All right, we're we're holding you to it, okay? Okay. <laughs> we'll get sure. you on the show when it's time, and we'll play this clip, and you'll say, I told you I manifested it, all right? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Thank you, guys. Yeah, yeah. we really appreciate your time. Um, everybody will be so excited to see the docuseries, and, and hopefully you soon in a Blue Jays uh, uniform. Appreciate everything, and uh, we'll definitely chat down the road. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Thank you. Uh, Arjun Namala, of course, Blue Jays' first-round pick in the 2023 MLB draft. If you missed it earlier, a four-part docuseries called Indian Baseball Dreams. MLB commissioned will tell the story of Armin Namala, who was selected in the first round. It's a four-part documentary. It's debuting on MLB Network in the United States. And four episodes will debut here on Sportsnet immediately following the following games. Monday, February 26th. Wednesday, February 28th, Thursday, February 29th, and Monday, March 4th. So make sure you get an opportunity to see those uh, because the story is is incredible. You know, he mentions a lot about his family, about his cricket roots, about coming to Can- uh, to America and playing and realizing that he could do something that nobody else has done. He's the first first-generation Indian American to be drafted at the, such a prominent slot across any round, yeah. of the four major U.S. professional sports leagues, any of the four major sports leagues. Pretty amazing. So it's, it's incredible. And he's a Toronto Blue Jay, so. And he's a good kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, what an enviable position, right? Like, it's, uh, baseball's a little bit different, at least in terms of our teams, where there's, like, a ramp-up process. Mm. Like, you can learn about the city. You can be in the city before you're, you know, truly part of the city or a big player in the city. And he kind of, he hyped himself. But we tried to get a hype up. But he's mentioned <laughs> World Series, been a while. I'm mm-hmm. going to help this team win it. Like, there are a couple things that you can do if you're a star athlete in the city that can really endear. He mentioned it a little bit, the hard work. He didn't say hard work specifically. If you're a hard worker, and if he learns that and he does that, he's going to be a star in the city. Good-looking mm-hmm. kid. Like, he's got it all. He's going to be loved uh, if he can be a big part of this Blue Jays team. Uh, and, and that seems like there's, you know, there's a bright future ahead of him. Uh, but he probably doesn't even know how big he's going to be. Yeah. It must be so exciting to be in his shoes where, you know, he's got all the best support system around him now. He's got a a great city and a country that's like patiently waiting, you know, patiently to a sense of like, what's our window. We have some youngish players that need to figure out what, what the blue Jays window is, but he's just got this opportunity uh, where we're all going to learn about him. We're going to see him in this massive docuseries, which doesn't, as you said, doesn't happen to every first round pick big, you know, big opportunity for him to, to be a trailblazer. Um, But also, he seems super humble, super hardworking. Uh, there's, as I said, great article up on sportsnet.ca. Blair and Barker are back tomorrow. I'm sure they'll 
definitely have a, a touch on um, the docuseries when they're back up on the air, but make sure you take a look at it uh, debuting on February 26th. Uh, Blue Jays baseball is back on Saturday. First spring training games is crazy. It doesn't doesn't obviously feel like it right now with the weather, but it's spring it's, training. It's always a hard like mental exercise yeah. to do when you look outside and you see how it is, and then there's baseball starting. Mm. But that does mean there's hope on the way. I like that. Like, Didn't the groundhog say that spring was coming? Not sure. I think all three of the groundhogs. First of all, I don't know why we have three. How, yeah, how do we get to three? But there's three we now. Don't need three. And they all. We need one said and we need one spring, to make a decision. Spring is coming. So that's it. Saturday, Blue Jays baseball. Uh, there's a couple things earlier in the show we didn't get a chance to touch on. Uh, how about USC 298? Sure. I mean, I think you were. Okay. What? No, yeah, yeah, no. Just set the I, stage. I think, uh, listen, USC 297 was our first, uh, your first experience really diving in. Uh, to the sport, and we were ringside for it. We could not have been physically was, closer without being in the ring. And it was <laughs> unbelievable, very cool, like it's unlike anything else. I will say, though, the fights weren't great. They were, it wasn't like, mm. it wasn't a show-stopping night by any stretch of the imaginations. Canadians going 2-7, and seven, Canadian men going 0-7. Oh <laughs> there wasn't like a whole lot to cheer about. But of course, we did the game, uh, the Leaf game, Leaf broadcast on radio, Saturday night, go home, we both watched it. You mm. described yourself as a dyed-in-the-wool, true UFC fan now, based on what you saw. Wow, that's uh, it's certainly inaccurate. However, I Not will say, I, we, when we saw 297, I didn't really know what to expect. Obviously, being there was incredible. We were so close, but I didn't, I didn't think that, as someone that had barely watched any UFC before this, as I've mentioned, I'm a new fan, which is exciting. I didn't really know. It just was loud. It was quick. It was right in front of us, but... The fights in UFC 298 that we just watched, even though it was on TV and it was in front row, delivered way more, like, punch, way more impact. Mm-hmm. It, they were awesome. And we only, I only caught the tail end, uh, so, like, the main events, really, the, the biggest fights of the night because we were doing the Leafs game on Sports at 590 The Fan. So I didn't get home until I believe there's only three fights left. And those were all great fights. And I remember kind of saying out loud, wow, this is, like, so much better. It was just, it was fast. It was impactful. There wasn't all the hugging it out. You know, they were really fighting. Mm-hmm. That's my, that's my expert take on it. <laughs> is I really, really loved it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there was like a legacy moment, right? We talked mm-hmm. about it last week. Alexander Volkanovsky in the main event. Maybe he, he wanna, might be washed. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it's my wanna, other expert and, and that's take. A, that's another thing. Like there's always like, okay, you're going to, uh, uh, and we always do this as Canadians. You compare yourself to George St. Pierre. Mm. You can have George St. Pierre's resume when you're all said and done. Well, if you're going to be George, then you have to uh, resist mm-hmm. the late career loss. Like you can't run into, uh, fi- like meet your match, run into the wall, have father time actually knock you out. In the case of Alexander Volkanovsky, this time around, although it's Ilya Tupuria doing the knocking out. But that's something George never suffered. Actually won his last fight, won a second title mm-hmm. in his last fight against, against uh, Michael Bisping. But Alexander Volkanovsky, we teed it up as, okay, is he going to get onto the Mount Rushmore? Is this one of the greatest of all time? And then we watched the fight and we we're like, no, mm. he's not. He looked like he was older and he suffered that loss. And he's not the undisputed champ. He's probably not going to win another title yep. because it looks like he's hit the end of the line. Again, he can have, he can rematch him. He can win again. Maybe there's a, a better day ahead for well, Alexander like Volkanovsky. Topurio was saying, no, oh, you know, like, 
I'm kind of like, I don't want to rematch him. Like he was saying, yeah, he was I'm saying McGregor, which is, but, you know, he, the money but he was thing, also but... saying like, you've had your time. Like let's get newer, younger yep. faces in there. And although that sucks for Volkanovsky, I'm kind of agree with the perspective of it. It's like how move, like move forward in a sense. And frankly, I don't think he's going to be different because he looked like he was better that, than Volkanovsky. Yeah. I also liked, uh, well, I wonder if I like this or not, or if I'm liking it in retrospect, found out that Topuria put in his Instagram bio about two or three months ago. He changed his bio to UFC champion, 15 and 0 undefeated weeks before he fought. Now that is a risky business because you know, old takes exposed, but the fact that you just, you just know, and you just believe so much that you're going to win. And then you do, I respect it. I respect it, a but sa- I would savage. never, ever be able to do that. My stomach hurts thinking like <laughs> if I wrote like uh host of hockey United in Canada, <laughs> like imagine I'm like, I am Ron McClay. Yeah, like, no, no, it's just, it's crazy. Yeah. It's so crazy. A savage and a clairvoyant. Uh, yeah. You look like you got it all. Um, but yeah, I think this is, that's kind of, I think what was illustrated, like the highs and lows mm. of this sport are what makes it special, I think. And you, you get the low of an all-time great, one of the best, at least in their weight class, and Alexander Volkanovsky, who may have to find something else mm. to do now versus the high of, hey, this guy from Spain and Georgia who didn't have this, you know, didn't have all that hype mm-hmm. behind him, but kind of earned his hype and is now on top of the world. It, it, it's like all cyclical. It can't last forever. But boy, when you reach the highest of highs like he did and, I guess he called it. Uh, it's kind That's of a crazy. different level, right? Like you get a triumph unlike you get in other sports uh, when you win a main event and a title in the UFC. I will say I uh, really liked the Whitaker-Costa fight. Mm-hmm. That was that was like, that was power. Yeah. And I, I said to you that that Costa guy looks like literally an action figure. If you went into a store and you were buying a, a, a an action figure, that is the man you would buy. Exactly. And, he, and he landed, I don't know what it's called. That like, kick was... It's, it's like a wheel kick, spinning wheel <sighs> kick. Uh, on the button, the guy was clearly in trouble. Robert, Robert Whitaker was in trouble but survived because there's only 10 seconds or so left in the <sighs> round. But... Didn't it went to decision and mm-hmm. didn't win that round? I mean, I he totally landed agree. the best strike of the entire I night. I was surprised that he won. Had him on skates. Clearly, he did the most damage yeah. in that round. Didn't win the round. I thought that was a little funky, but uh, uh, in the end, the right guy won. I thought that. Okay, night. so the last narrative that we talked about before the weekend was UFC 300, the big one. It's a, it's like a headline. It's it's a 300, a monumental day, a monumental day. Uh, they have announced the 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 main event, Alex. Pierre, Pierre, Pereira, and Hill, Jamal Hill, Jamal Hill. Yeah, I mean, as I said, newcomer to the sport. Rah rah, not really feeling it. I think that for, for the, that fight, but the rest of the card we've talked about is, the rest is great. I mean, that that fight is really good too. But, uh, but what we were talking, this is like, you know, WrestleMania is like a little different. Like the Rock mm, comes to WrestleMania. Yes. 300, 100, 200, like, I feel like it's okay. You're trying to blur the lines to infiltrate pop culture in mm-hmm. some ways, and that's why Conor McGregor or John Jones, someone who would, uh, you know, bring a little bit more of that star power, can't miss, this is going to be something like you've never seen before. Yes. This is kind of a run-of-the-mill main event okay. in any UFC fight. It's the Just light heavyweight champion. I was justified. They're two really good fighters. But is it like, wow, that's something you could have never, ever forged uh, in your life? No, it's just kind of a really good fight. And that's okay, I guess, because the card is really good. But I think everyone will mm. compare 299 and 300 now. And I think a lot of people will think 299 is better. 
Well, because also there was all this excitement and hype that maybe they would announce something unbelievable, and it was just believable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly how uh, it's best put. Thank you very much. Uh, I have two quick shout-out, A-list shout-outs. Nike this weekend. Nike did a great job because there there was two really wonderful moments in women's sports this past weekend. Caitlin Clark obviously beating the all-time scoring uh, record during her game where she hit a three from the logo to do so. And they came up with just a really simple slogan photo. You break it, you own it. I just thought it, you know, those moments are, you probably wait 10 months a year knowing that she's going to do this thing. What are you going to come up with? Is there something? And it's just like, you break it, you own it. With mm-hmm. a photo of her shooting. I thought it was great. Then the next day, Sabrina Ionescu goes head to head with Steph Curry. And she does an incredible job. It, like I was, I was so impressed. And their slogan from it is, if you can shoot, you can shoot. And I just thought so simple, so like powerful with these words. And, you know, Nike has really great marketing most of the time, but I just really like those two still photos that I saw on my timeline this, this weekend in two great women's sports history moments, two great athletes doing something that, you know, you, you know, when you've seen a tiger photo, you know, when you've seen a moment with a Nike slogan attached to a photo. And I thought they did a wonderful job with both of those. No company does font better. The font is like it, uh, it's like so simple. It's, and the, it's beauty. Uh, the beauty is how simple it is. Like the simplicity is beauty, or whatever the the saying I'm trying to say is. But yes, mm. it's just a simple saying Beautiful. font photo. You don't need uh, you don't need much else. And Nike nailed it with that. Um, how about a ten seconds each? A best bet for tonight. Oh, Mar- Martin HS tonight. Martin HS tonight. He's scored in five of the last six home games versus the Blackhawks. I don't know. I like it. Plus 175. No NBA because the All-Star break and all the NHL games have been played, but two. So I'm going to parlay the favorites. Lightning and Hurricanes to win plus 100. Okay. (laughs) Simple. All right. That was fun. Well, happy uh, family day, everyone. A two-hour show from the fan pregame with our family. Thanks for watching. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow. Just a regular one-hour show. Slack in tomorrow. Have a good night.